Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese. Our bi-monthly podcasts feature interviews with philosophers about their ideas as expressed in their newly published books. Today's interview is with Uriah Kriegel, whose latest book, The Sources of Intentionality, is just out from Oxford University Press. Professor Kriegel is an associate professor of philosophy at the University of Arizona. It is standard in philosophy of mind to draw a basic distinction between two kinds of mental phenomena, so-called intentional states, which are about or represent other items or themselves, such as beliefs about your grandmother, and phenomenal or experiential states, which are typified by such items as feelings of pain or experiences of seeing red or smelling coffee. It's a matter of great debate how to explain either of these kinds of mental phenomena in terms that show exactly how they can be part of a purely physical world. The approach that has been dominant in recent decades is to try to explain the phenomenal in terms of the intentional. In other words, to explain conscious experience in terms of intentionality, and then to explain intentionality in terms of physical relations, such as causal relations, between thinkers and the items that they are thinking about. However, the nature of consciousness has remained stubbornly resistant to such reductive efforts, at least for some philosophers. In this erudite and stylishly written and provocative volume, filled with suggestive pathways for future research, Professor Kriegel defends a theory that reverses this order of explanatory priority and seeks to explain intentionality in terms of conscious experience. His arguments draw on significant new work on the nature of consciousness that seek to give it a more central explanatory role than it has been given in understanding the mind. Let's turn to the interview. So I have with me today Urea Kriegel from the University of Arizona, whose latest book, The Sources of Intentionality, is just out from Oxford University Press. Uriah, are you there? Hi, Carrie. Hi, Uriah. How are you doing? Pretty good. Thank you for inviting me to do this. Oh, it's my pleasure. Um, it was a great book. Uh, I must say I have to uh, compliment you on both the, the stylishness of the writing as well as the erudition. And um, there was a lot of very suggestive um, passages there that, you know, were just from an intellectual point of view, um, were very kind of inspiring in terms of, huh, you know, I should, this is worth thinking about further, um, which is always nice, which is always nice. Um, So before we get into the the details of your arguments uh, in the sources of intentionality, uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit first about how you came to philosophy, um, how you came to be interested in philosophy of mind and consciousness in particular, um, and then finally how you came to the topic of this book. All right, so I think I can actually answer all of this in one answer, because I got into philosophy, I believe I was 13 And I uh, was taking my dog for a walk around the block. And it occurred to me suddenly that if there is a tree in some faraway land, I think the thought was about Uganda. If there's a tree in Uganda that I never saw and never will see, is it a real tree or not? And this kind of thought sort of bothered me for months afterwards until I discovered that there were people who actually wrote about these things and called themselves philosophers. And But it's odd, but by the time I arrived to college, I knew that I was going to just do philosophy until people did not allow me to do philosophy anymore. And so that's how I got there. And my interest in philosophy of mind, in a way, was based on the same general concern for the gap, the potential gap between mind and reality, between how the mind represents the world and how the world really is, how the the world really is versus how it appears to us. A kind of uh, standard Cartesian worry about skepticism and a possible gap between appearance and reality. And so that's how I got, I figured if I want to understand that, I need to understand mental representation, how the mind represents the world. And if I want to understand that, I later 
came to believe I need to understand how consciousness works because at some point I came to believe that all representation is grounded in conscious representation. So conscious representation is the basic form of representation and other forms of representation somehow derive from it. And in a way, that's what this book is about. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you're giving a, a, a general theory of representation which is grounded in conscious experiences, right? Um, so let me, to get into the, the, the book itself, um, the view that you are, um, that you're defending is, is not the one that has been most popular in recent decades, um, uh, although it has had its prior defenders, um, including, as you note, uh, John Searle in certain uh, aspects. Um, could you maybe summarize the dominant view, you know, that has been, you know, that you are in a sense responding to before we get into your response? Yeah, so the dominant view, the way I see it, is a view about the sources of intentionality. Um, and the view is that where sources, that's the, maybe it used a bit as a literary flourish here, but what it means is where does intentionality come from? Why is there intentionality at all in the world? And the basic answer that we've been getting from the 70s, if not earlier, is that it comes from certain relations between brain states and states of the world, relations that are naturalizable. And you can broadly call them tracking relations. So they are relations in virtue of which states of the brain track the presence of states of the world or states of the environment. And there are various debates about what the best tracking relation is to do this job. They are causal relations, they are counterfactual dependence relations, they are informational relations, theological relations, there are combinations of these. And that has been the main approach. I call this the naturalizing intentionality program. That's the approach I am uh, offering um, something of an alternative to. Okay. So uh, uh, also, how do you understand intentionality? Um, how, how would you define that just to get something on the table? Right. So I think there is... There is a kind of theoretically loaded way of understanding the notion of intentionality and a less theoretically loaded way. The more loaded way is as a kind of feature of mental states that underlies two kinds of inference failure. One is uh, inference through substitution of co-referential terms, and the other is inference through existential generalization. And I don't know if you want me to get into all this, but I, I think there is a, a, more, a less loaded way of understanding what intentionality is, which is some kind of directedness just the notion of directed, directedness of the mind onto the world, or states of the mind onto aspects of the world. So when you explain that to your students, for example, and they say, what do you mean by directedness? What do you say? Um, what I do with my students is that I give them examples. This seems to work best. So I say to them something like, when you think of a tree, there is something that your thought is directed at, namely the tree. And if someone tells you, I'm thinking, and you say to them, well, what are you thinking? 
and they say nothing. I'm just thinking. Then they don't really understand what the word thinking means. When you think, there's always something that you think, something that the thought is directed at. And that something is the intentional content of the thought. So intentionality is that feature that connects the thought to its intentional content. Okay. So um, at the very end of your book, uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll get to the front part in a moment, um, you describe your view in a nutshell as um, a combination of, of various things. Um, first, an experiential origins thesis, um, interpretivism about derived intentionality, a higher order tracking theory of underived intentionality, uh, a naturalized self-tracking construal of higher order tracking, an internalist twist that appeals to response-dependent properties only in underived intentional content, and finally, a teleo-informational take on the tracking relation. Um, that's clearly a lot, and, and we are not going to be able to get to all aspects of that. Um, but before, but we will certainly get to some of the key aspects of it. And um, so to start off with, um, at the very beginning in Chapter 1, I think, um, you begin... Can I say one thing yeah. about this? This yeah. um, series of, I think you mentioned six or seven theses. Yeah. I, I, want, I want to say just one thing, that the official thesis of the book is comprised of only the first three okay. of this list. And then there are specific versions that appeal to me that I don't really argue for. And I say, here's, if, here's how you would develop it if you took in all the things that appeal to me. And that gets you to the six or seven pieces conjoined. But the, the thesis of the book is, uh, is the official thesis is really just the conjunction of the first three theses, namely the experiential intentionality, sorry, the um, experiential origins of intentionality thesis, mm -hmm. which basically says that all intentionality derives from experiential intentionality. And then there is a thesis one about the nature of experiential intentionality and another thesis about the nature of non-experiential intentionality right. to comprise a sort of a whole. So um, in, in addition, I should say um, the official thesis at some point, I avow only 55% credence in its truth. So, right. Which is the highest I've ever gotten for anything. But okay. Um, yeah, I was I was actually going to ask about that. Um, so we, we will get back to that that fifty five percent figure. Um, <laughs> uh, but let me let me ask first about something a, a, a confusion I, I had at the very beginning, um, where you talk about uh, giving a theory of intentionality um, and or or I'm not, I'm not sure what sort of uh, um, logical operator I should use here, um, uh, and or a theory of the conception of intentionality. And as I went along, it seemed that in particular the conception you were talking about seemed to be uh, a folk conception of intentionality. Um, so could you just clarify, Is the theory seems to be about intentionality, but you seem to start by talking about a theory of a conception of intentionality. And I was wondering how you saw those two things being connected. Yeah, this is something that I wish I was more explicit on in the book. Here's what I had in mind. Suppose you want to develop a theory of zebras. So suppose someone comes to you and says, here's my theory of zebras. They have a bark and they have branches and usually they have leaves, though some of them, some of the zebras don't have leaves in, in winter and some uh, bear fruit and some don't. And really they give you a theory of trees, not of zebras. So uh, what you need when you start offering a theory of something is just a conception, a 
sort of rudimentary conception of what it is we're talking about. How do we get a handle on the subject matter? And so I start with a discussion of how we get a handle on the subject matter of the theory of intentionality by saying, and the way I put it, and I think now it's probably a suboptimal way to put it. Um, I was putting it in terms of, here's our conception of intentionality. And really what I meant is, here's a handle on, here's how you get a handle on the subject matter of the theory of intentionality. So uh, the goal is a theory of intentionality, and the reason I start with talking about the conception of intentionality is just to try to sort of fix on the subject matter. Okay. Um, yeah, because one of the, you know, one of the questions I had, you know, that, that's obviously going to arise is that, you know, we're, we're often quite wrong about, right, our, you know, initial conceptions of things are, are wrong. And certainly from a, you know, naturalizing, scientific, consistent point of view, uh, that might be a place to start, but we certainly don't have much, you know, sort of maybe we don't have much deep commitment to maintaining that initial conception. I mean, would you agree with that? Yes, I, I agree with that. So the... Uh... Of the model I give of conceptions of various phenomena in the beginning of chapter one is something like this. You start out with some instances that you take to have, or some particulars, let's say, some concrete particulars, that you take to have a certain commonality, a superficial commonality. And you construct, this is a mental construction of a category. And then you try to find what the underlying nature of that category is. And in principle, it could turn out to be very different from the superficial commonality that you found among these things. So I, I discuss how we might construct the, our conception of a mammal. So we start with, you know, you see dogs, you see cats, you see horses, maybe if you're lucky, you see some goats. You construct some kind of conception on the basis of that. And then you, you, um, you figure anything that has the same underlying nature as most of these, at least, maybe not all of them, maybe Maybe they don't all have an underlying commonality, but anything that has an underlying commonality with most of these original instances, which I call, I call them the um, anchoring instances because they anchor our conception. So anything that has the same underlying nature is these anchoring instances will qualify as an instance of that concept or something that falls under the concept. So with mammals, you may discover, even if you had, even if one of your anchoring instances was, um, let's say, uh, what's an example of something that turns out accurate? I guess uh, more commonly what we find is the converse of what I'm thinking of right now, which is, you you see bats and you see whales and you think that these are not mammals because superficially they're not like mammals. Then you discover that they have the same underlying nature as the anchoring instances of your conception of a mammal, namely cats and dogs, let's say. And then you decide, all right, so they are mammals after all. Okay. Um, so that's... That sort of leads directly to your experiential origins thesis, which is um, right. the idea that there are certain anchoring instances uh, of experiences. Um, wait, uh, so certain anchoring instances, I'm sorry, I misspoke. Certain anchoring instances 
for all intentionality that are, as it happens to be, conscious experiential experiences, I should say. Does that make sense to you? That's right. That's right. So the the thesis is basically this. The, The first thesis is that all the anchoring instances of our conception of intentionality are experiential intentional states. So states that are such that if they did not have the experiential character they do, they would not have the intentional content that they do. And why? I mean, why are all of them of this category? Right. So, um, you know, much of chapter one is dedicated to that and to basically developing the argument for that. And it's not a simple argument, but, but here's, here's the main idea. Certain phenomena, let's take natural kinds, for example. Some of them are such that you cannot observe the instances. Let's say leptons. You cannot directly observe leptons. So that's one kind of natural kind. Then there is another kind where you can observe, like zebras. You can observe zebras. So let's call that observational natural kind terms. My claim is that when you have a conception of a natural kind, an observational natural kind, your anchoring instances will always be instances that you observe. So your anchoring instances of mammal are mammals that you observe. And so I claim that there is an extended sense of observation where we can be said to observe our intentional states, some of our intentional states, not all of them, but this requires a kind of an idea that we have introspective observation of some intentional states. So I make the case for that, and I make the case that the only intentional states that we can introspectively observe are going to be experiential intentional states. And so the upshot is that only experiential intentional states are eligible to be anchoring instances of our conception of intentionality. Okay. Um, like, it's, it's not a simple argument. No, no. Um, but what one of the things that um, that occurred to me when I was reading that part is is the recent arguments, um, of which you're you're clearly aware of, of um, that that claim that you know paradigmatic intentional states like you know thoughts or beliefs, desires, and so forth. Um, they all have an experiential aspect to them. Um, just like the paradigms of phenomenal states like seeing red or smelling coffee, so forth, or feeling pain. Um, If that's correct, um, then how do you get the, what gets to be the ground D and what gets to be the ground DER? Given, right. if you see what I mean, well, if if yeah. all intent, if all mental states have an experiential component, um, then how are we drawing this distinction for which gets to ground what? Right. So, um, I should say that I'm a proponent of these ideas that thoughts and desires can have. A phenomenal character and moreover a proprietary, sweet, generous kind of phenomenal character, what is often referred to as cognitive phenomenology in the case of thought. So even the thought that 2 plus 2 equals 4 feels a certain way. And so I do consider them to be experiential intentional states because they are cognitive experiences. But I don't think it needs to be part of the view that all thoughts have a phenomenal character or all mental states have a phenomenal dimension. 
you have unconscious mental states, phenomenally unconscious mental states of many varieties. So thinking about beliefs, for example, there, are, there might be conscious beliefs, but there might also be many other beliefs that are unconscious, tacit beliefs, dispositional beliefs, etc. Likewise, there are desires that are unconscious, whether they are tacit desires, like the desire to be happy, or repressed desires, such as an um, Freudian desire. And so there are all these unconscious tokens, and those will not get to be um, to have the uh, basic kind of intentionality. They're only going to have the derivative kind of intentionality. So when you have an unconscious belief that 2 plus 2 equals 4, the reason it has that content is a different reason from when you consciously believe that 2 plus 2 equals 4. When you have a state of consciously believing that 2 plus 2 equals 4, there's one story about what makes it the case that that's what it's a belief about. And when it's an unconscious belief that 2 plus 2 equals 4, it will be another story and moreover a story that derived that intentional status of the unconscious belief from the intentional status of conscious states. Okay, so um, it it sounds like, I mean, maybe you tell me if you agree or disagree. It, it sounds like you would like to divide up the territory in a different way than it traditionally is, right? So we, we begin with a traditional distinction here between intentional states and experiences um, and what seems to be falling out of your account is that that distinction is uh, is somehow not the right way to cut up the, the mental territory. The right way to cut it up is to start with consciousness or conscious experience and and then talk about intentionality and whether things are uh, experiences of blue or experiences of 2 plus 2 equals 4. Um, that difference is not the relevant sort of difference we want for an adequate theory of intentionality. So all of this is right, except I would make one modification, which is that um, I am happy with grounding non-conscious, non-experiential intentionality in conscious experiential intentionality. But I remain silent on the issue in this book, on the issue of whether within the realm of experiential intentionality, we want to ground the intentional dimension in the experiential dimension or we want instead to identify them. So grounding is sounds like an asymmetric relation. Yeah. So that if you if you take experiential intentionality and you say within experiential intentionality the intentional is grounded by the experiential, it sounds like you're saying the experiential is more basic. But I don't want to say that. I just want to say within experiential intentionality, it could also be that there's a symmetric relation of identity. It's just one and the same property, which is experiential intentionality. However, non-experiential intentionality is grounded in experiential intentionality. So uh, that's the only modification I would make to uh, the kind of departure from the uh, traditional picture that you described. Okay. Um so let's get to your accounts of experiential intentionality, which are the the, the grounding ones. Um, uh, you you provide two different accounts. I mean, one is the higher order tracking theories, which derive from higher order theories of consciousness. Um, uh, 
uh, and plus tracking. Um, and then the second is the adverbial theory. Um, and we can get into your, your different degrees of, of credence in each of those. Um, but maybe you could first summarize um, this higher order tracking theory um, as the, the first option for explaining experiential intentionality. And, and also, um, uh, it might be helpful if you uh, gave an example and worked through things using a, a, an example just so we're not, you know, entirely, you know, talking in very abstract terms. Uh, but I prefer talking in abstract terms. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right. So uh, let's see. Um, let me start with the abstract characterization of the idea behind high-order tracking and then give an example. So suppose you have some conception of, of tracking relations. And as you know, some people... Am I right, Carrie, that uh, David Rosenthal was your advisor at me? No, he was on my committee. I see. All right, so... Um, but I'm well well acquainted with his hot theory. Right. Yeah. Right. So there is the view that the experiential character, so the, uh, let's say the, the fact that some phenomenal experience is the phenomenal experience it is, and the fact that it is a phenomenal experience at all, it, it all is based on the fact that it's, has certain representational properties, it bears certain representational relations to the environment, and that these representational relations in turn can be understood in terms of tracking. So that's one kind of package feel out there known as the representational theory of consciousness. And then there is this opposing account of consciousness where what makes a mental state have the phenomenal character it does and have a phenomenal character at all. It's not that it represents something, but that something represents it. So that it is the target of some higher order representation. Higher order in the sense that it represents a representation. So you, you can have a mental state that represents a tree and is higher order represented to represent a tree what makes it have the tree-ish phenomenal character that it does is not that it represents a tree, but that it's high-order represented to represent a tree. That's the high-order theory. Now, oddly, the people who like high-order theory never, never marry it explicitly. Never, never is probably too strong of it. Um, do not prominently marry it with a tracking account of representation, but they could. Sure. And if they did, what you would get is that a mental state is a tree phenomenal character in virtue of being higher order tracks to track a tree or higher order track in its capacity as a tree tracker or something like that. And that's what I call the higher order tracking theory. Now, in a previous book, I defended a pretty eccentric version of the higher order theory. And so, in this book, I don't actually make the case for why we should go with higher order representationalism as opposed to first order representationalism. I just sent to my previous book. But if you, uh, if you take all that on board, you end up with a higher order tracking theory of experiential intentionality, which has the virtue that, it, on the one hand, it works with naturalistically acceptable materials, tracking relations, and on the other hand, it accommodates the insights of the higher-order theory of consciousness, in case you like those, as I do. Does, now... This was all in the abstract, except they did talk about the tree. Does that qualify as giving an example? Uh, yeah, although, you know, tracking... Uh, ah, yes, is, is thing about is, tracking. You know, the, 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 uh, the iteration there is, is hard to grasp. Yeah, yeah. It's easy enough to grasp in the, in the abstract, but right. what, it, what it, you know, boils down to, I can understand, I can understand some, uh, some, you know, perhaps state of my brain 
tracking, you know, being being correlated in the correct sort of way with trees. Um, but then having some other state being correlated with that state in the right way gets a little bit fuzzy for me. Yes, so let me let me say something about this. So let's start with a kind of a pretty elegant account of tracking the tracking relation from Gretzky. Let's suppose you have a snail that you know hides in the bushes except when it rains. When it rains, the snail comes out of the bushes and starts crawling around in the open space. And so what happens here, and not only that's the case, it's, it's a matter of the laws of nature, I guess the laws of biology, the laws of zoology, that that's the case, that, uh, that this, the snail does not come out unless it rains. So if you are told that a gale the snail left the bushes and is now crawling across the, uh, the backyard, you can assume on that basis that it's probably raining. And this kind of relation between Gale the snail coming out of the bushes and it raining is what is sometimes called counterfactual dependence, where that means it Gale the snail would not come out unless it was raining. So Dretsky, the original Dretsky, basically says tracking is counterfactual dependence grounded in the laws of nature. Then he uh, he adds all kinds of features to uh, handle difficult cases, but that's the fundamental idea. So let's suppose let's suppose that's standard first order tracking. Then you might think. So, actually, let me add one more thing. Suppose it also is part of the laws of nature that some brain states do not occur unless it's raining. Then what you have there is a brain state that counterfactually depends on it raining. And in that sense, the brain state will be tracking the presence of rain, just like Gale, the snail, leaving the bush and crawling across the backyard tracks the rain, the presence of rain. So that's how you get brain states tracking the environment. Now you might think there are parts of the brain that are more sophisticated and are involved in monitoring of other parts of the brain. These are probably going to be frontal areas, prefrontal areas, parts of prefrontal cortex and maybe the anterior cingulate cortex would be part of it. But in any case, you can imagine states of that, those parts of the brain, that occur only if states of the more basic parts of the brain, let's say visual cortex, occur. So suppose you have a tree, and you have a state of visual cortex that does not occur unless a tree is present, and then a state of prefrontal cortex that does not occur unless uh, the relevant state of visual cortex occurs. Then you have first-order tracking of the tree by visual cortex and higher-order tracking of visual cortex by prefrontal cortex. And that's what I envisage higher-order tracking to be, and uh, admittedly, there's, there's an empirical speculation here that this could be all falsifiable. But maybe that's a virtue. I, I would think so. No. Um, okay, that, that, that was very helpful. Um, um, and that's the theory of uh, experiential intentionality, the first, the first theory of experiential intentional, intentionality that you, um, that you try on in a sense. Um, and then you, you also, you know, try out a, a second theory, the adverbial theory, um, which I suppose in the interest of time, we don't need to get into as much, but, uh, what you, what we might ask is, um, 
you put your degree of credence in the in the first account, the higher order tracking theory, as about fifty five percent, and your your uh, credence in the in the adverbial theory um, as about at about forty five percent. And could you maybe explain why you know not so much the exact percentages, but um, uh, why the adverbial view for you, uh, which which you might say something about briefly, um, why it doesn't clearly satisfy your uh, criterion of, of being naturalizable, or at least not obviously, um, and then why you think the tracking theory uh, is is inadequate to the extent that it can't um, ratify some apparently possible experiential intentional states. All right. So let me take this into two parts. First of all, the uh, 55-45 business. Um, I should say, in my defense, I, I'm fully aware that this comes across as, as slightly comical. Actually not. <laughs> um, if I remember correctly, what the book says is I actually make no assertion I put it in the hypothetical form. I think I said something like it would be amusing if I said that I have 55% credence in the higher order tracking and 45% credence in adverbialism. And those are actually the credences that I think I have. Um, I think I have a phenomenology of credences, and that's what I'm basing it on. But I don't take that very seriously. The important thing is that there are two kinds of this desiderata that I end up in the book saying, it's not clear to me how you can satisfy both to the fullest extent, so you might have to sacrifice one to get more from of the other. And basically, the high-order tracking account satisfies one kind of desideratum, which is to be consistent with a naturalistic worldview. And the adverbialist one satisfies another desideratum, which is that whenever some kind of experiential, intentional state seems to us possible, so it is conceivable, uh, it would be nice if we could sort of ratify this appearance of possibility, that it will turn out that it really is possible. And I think each of them, so adverbialism does better on that, and that's because I value naturalization, I guess a tiny bit more, I I end up with that distribution of grievances. So that's the, the, the one thing to say, but let me say a little bit about this adverbialist account and its advantages and problems. So the adverbialist account says that a mental state qualifies as an experience as of a tree not in virtue of bearing a tracking relation to the tree, not in virtue of bearing more complicated relation of being tracked to track the tree, not um, not any kind of relation, really. It's purely a non-relational modification of the state, of the state, of the state's overall phenomenal character, if you will. And what makes me attracted to this view, first of all, maybe I should say the reason I call it adverbial is because it says, you know, an experience of a tree is not a matter of bearing an offness relation to the tree. Rather, it's a matter of having an experience which has, which it, and to have it in a certain particular kind of way that you have it tree-wise. You have your experience tree-wise, which is just a way to describe a sort of artificially concocted way to describe the experiential character of the experience. 
So what makes me attracted to this is basically the idea of hallucination and in particular, very radical types of hallucination. So I'm thinking of a brain in a vat that hallucinates an Escher triangle. So an Escher triangle is a logically impossible uh, object. And there is the brain in the vat is not even connected to real triangles in any way. So it, 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 its brain is not reliable. To, it, it, its brain states are not reliably tracking real triangles in any way. And yet we can imagine that this kind of experience is possible. A brain in the vat could have an Escher triangle hallucination. Now, of course, one line on this is, no, it's not possible. But let, let's bracket that for now. If you think it's possible, the question is, how could that be, given that the object is impossible, so you couldn't bear any relation to it? Right. Some, so my conclusion is, well, it's got to be a non-relational thing, a non-relational feature of that brain state. Now, some people might say, well, there are some very unusual relations relations that don't require all the relata to exist. And I think that when you really reflect on this, you realize it's incoherent. It's not more coherent than to say there are some monadic properties that are instantiated, even though there are no instantiators. So I rule that out as an incoherent option. And all this leads me to say, all right, so it's got to be a non-relational feature of the brain state, the, uh, the experiential state mm -hmm. that makes it that makes it an experience as of an Escher triangle. And what I like about verbalism is that it can it can ratify, as I put it, our pre-theoretical impression that these kinds of experiences are possible. And I think the higher order tracking theory cannot do that. It basically needs to say. These things are seem possible, they are conceivable, but they are not ultimately genuinely possible. They are not metaphysically possible, as people often put it. And I, you know, it's, it was, as I was reading this, I, 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 I would have pegged you for reversing the orders of credence. Um, and the reason why I say that is because one of your motivations, and in fact, you talked about this when you talked about at age 13, you're thinking about the tree that in Uganda that you're not observing and can't ever, or won't ever observe as a factual matter. Um, uh, the appearance reality distinction. And, um, boy, that distinction seems to go pretty well with the adverbial theory better. Absolutely. And so yeah. I, w I would have thought that you would have, you know, gone for that one more than the, than the tracking theory. So, all right. So sometimes this relates to the part of your previous question that I haven't gotten to yet regarding naturalization. Right. So I'll talk about this in a second. Okay. And let me just say this now. The... There are two naturalistic virtues that you might detect in a theory. One is that, that the really nice one is that it delivers naturalization of the phenomenon it is a theory of. That's the nice one. The weaker one is it at least does not preclude naturalization mm -hmm. of the phenomenon it is a theory of. Now, I think the higher-order tracking theory delivers naturalization. And I think that the adverbial theory does not deliver naturalization, and there's an open question as to whether it precludes naturalization. Now, I, I want to say something about why I'm saying why that is my impression, but before that, I, I want to also say that I sometimes worry that the distribution of credences I end up with it just reflects kind of a conservative prejudice on my part. There's nothing super rational about it. It's I'm prejudiced in favor of some 
this chimerical goal of naturalization that nobody fully understands what it even exactly is, though a lot of people have a kind of an instinctual sense of what it might be. They, they know it when they see it. Mm-hmm. It's, and so I sometimes worry that maybe th- this distribution of credences that I ended up with is not rationally warranted, given all the desiderata that I myself am bringing to the table. But, you know, whatever, that's what I... Uh, that's what I <laughs> yeah, th- th- this is a possibility. I, I, I'm fully aware of the possibility that I'm, I'm just being uh, prejudiced here. But... Having said that, why do I why do I worry about adverbialism and naturalization? So the reason I don't think adverbialism delivers naturalization of experiential intentionality is that all the naturalistically kosher features that have been tried out as possible. as possible naturalization bases, let's say, for intentionality, have all been relational. And in particular, they have been some kind of causal relations or causally based relations like tracking relations. That's part of our sort of scientifically respectable mechanical causal conception of how the world works. And adverbialism doesn't appeal to any relation, so not even a causal relation. So that's so I don't think it delivers anything. Now, it's, well, it doesn't deliver relations. It's right, it's a different story. I, I would think. Right, and so so there is a possibility that there are non-relational properties, let's say neural properties of the brain, and that these adverbial intentional properties, these adverbial properties of intentional states like the, the, the property of, of happening tree-wise, and they are reducible to certain neural events, non-relational neural properties of the brain. So that's a possibility, but I don't think that's delivered by the adverbial theory. It's something that the adverbial theory does not preclude, but I also think, and I go through this, towards the end of the chapter on adverbialism, I also think that there are real worries about these kinds of brute identifications of experiential properties, such as the adverbial properties, with neural properties. Of course, you have the block stonemaker view of the world where that's exactly what experiential properties are. They are just brutally identical to neural properties. But I claim that in the context of a naturalization project, you really want to the, the, you really want to increase your understanding of the phenomena. So there is an epistemological aspect to the exercise, you try to, in trying to naturalize something, you try to demystify it. And by trying to demystify it, you try to render it more intelligible. Mm -hmm. And this is something that just saying, well, it's brutally identical to something that we already recognize as naturalistically kosher doesn't achieve. Brute identities do not achieve any illumination. Because they, you don't, they don't tell you why these good identities hold. And this is something that Locke and Stonemaker are explicit on. They don't think these good identities can or need to be explained. And that's maybe fine in the context of some other debate, but in the context of naturalization and therefore demystification and therefore rendering intelligible, I don't think it's fine to have a good identity. Okay. Now that's... Yeah. Go ahead. So, just to mention that there are two naturalization strategies that I considered on on behalf of the adverbialist, and this is one of them. And the other one is to say they are relational states of the brain, and they are emergence bases for these experiential adverbial properties, maybe in a 
along the lines of what Chalmers called naturalistic dualism, and that that's, that's some other way to get naturalization going within the adverbialist framework. And I, I raised some problems for that. So my conclusion of that discussion was, it's not obvious that adverbialism precludes naturalization, but there's a worry that it might, and most certainly nothing that adverbialism says delivers naturalization. Okay. So and that's yeah. to the high-order tracking theory. Yeah. If you prefer naturalization over the rectification of the appearance of possibility. Okay. So, so between so we have now two competing accounts of the the grounding, the grounded, uh, or the grounding experiential states. Um, higher-order tracking versus the adverbial theory, and those are for the, the basic ones, the, the uh, experiential intentional states. Um, on top of that, then you have a theory of interpretivism uh, for, the un, for the derived, the, the, the unbasic uh, experiential intentional states. Non-experiential. Non-experiential, sorry. Right. Intentional states. Um, so could you just finally add that that piece to the to the whole basic picture? Right. So, yeah, so uh, maybe to recap. So once you argue that all non-experiential intentionality derives from experiential intentionality, you want an account of experiential intentionality, I offer two possible ones and uh, assign credences on my end, and then I offer an account of the non-experiential derived type of intentionality, and that is an inter an interpretivist account, which basically applies Dennett's intentional stance theory mm -hmm. in a limited way to uh, just non experiential intentionality as opposed to applying it to all intentionality as Dennett does. So there are, in, in fact, there are two departures from Dennett. One, instead of having the intentional stance theory be a theory of all intentionality, it's only of non-experiential intentionality. And two, I, uh, one of the beautiful things about Dennett is that you read them and you get a really lively, vivid sort of sense of the spirit of the view. And one of the somewhat frustrating aspects of Dennett is that you don't always get the letter of the view. You get the spirit of the view much better than you get the letter of the view. So the, the other departure is to, to make it, make the formulation of interpretivism much more rigorous than anything you have in Dennett. And it's a, the result is, uh, sort of a, um, a regimented, limited kind of intentional stance theory. How do you, uh, I mean, on his view, it's, it's, it's rather an open question, or at least the spirit of his view is such that um, it's an open question whether the beliefs and desires that we ascribe from the intentional stance have any correlates in uh, in the brain, right, in terms of neural states. Um, so how do you reconcile, I mean, that's the original intentional stance. Um, how, how do you reconcile that particular aspect with what, what you know, if you're, if you're talking about tracking and, you know, second-order tracking or adverbialism, you're already talking about a close relationship of experiential intentional and non-experiential intentional states to the brain. Um, so how do you reconcile that, that aspect of the, the intentional stance with your more internalist sort of interpretation? Right. So there is, um, this is achieved by two things. One, the regimentation, and two, the characterization of what it takes for a theory of intentionality to be realist. That, that's what we're talking about, right? Whether yeah. whether whether Dennett is an intentional realist or not, and it's kind of it's not 
clear from his writings what he is. Right. Well, his, if, if there's a realism, my sense has always been it's a realism about patterns of behavior. That it's mm. not, it's certainly not intentional realism in the, in the more Fodorian sense. Right, right. All right. So, um, here's what I do. First of all, so the regimentation of the theory is something like this. We understand intentional stance theory in terms of the kind of intentional ascriptions that an ideal interpreter would make under ideal conditions. So to say that some unconscious belief is the belief that P, or some, let's say, some unconscious state is the belief that P, just is to say that that unconscious state is disposed to elicit in an ideal interpreter under ideal conditions the ascription of a belief that be. That's all it means. Now the question is, is this realist or is this not realist? And I want to say in some senses it is, in other senses it's not. Part of the issue is what we require from realism. There is a very uh, beautiful book by Crispin Wright about the different ways to draw the realist-irrealist divide, or realist-anti-realist divide. But at least one way to draw this distinction is think about realism about numbers. Realism about numbers says nothing more than that numbers exist. So suppose I use that notion of realism. To be a realist about non-experiential intentionality is just to say that non-experiential prop in, sorry, non-experiential intentionality exists. And maybe that would require us to say something more specific, namely that non-experiential intentional properties are instantiated. And what I claim in the book is that on the regimented intentional stance theory that I offer for non-experiential intentionality, these these properties are instantiated. So it's it is it is true of some brain states that they do instantiate those dispositional properties, the property of being disposed to elicit in an ideal interpreter under ideal conditions a certain kind of intentional ascription. These these dispositions may not be manifested, but the manifestation of a disposition and the instantiation of the disposition are two different things. So the the dispositional properties will be instantiated even though they are not manifested since there are no ideal interpreters. Um, okay, we we are actually out of time. Um, although I, I would like to pursue that more, but um, I, I think we should close. Um, and let me close with the final question about um, where you go from here, what you're working on now, and uh, yeah, what your what your next project is. All right. So you were alluding to these uh, recent debates about whether Thoughts, beliefs, desires have a kind of nominal character proprietary to them, as opposed to the more conservative view that says that only perception, only perception plus pain and pleasure have a phenomenal character. So some people have debated this notion of cognitive phenomenology. Other people have debated the notion of a phenomenology of agency, what it's like to do something, or at least what it's like to try to do something. Other people debate the phenomenology of emotion, whether it's reducible to other kinds of phenomenology or it has some kind of proprietary component as well. Other people debate moral phenomenology. Others debate um, phenomenology of freedom. What I want to raise and the book that I'm writing now is the generalized question, how many types of phenomenal primitives, if you will, um, irreducible types of phenomenology do we need to posit to just be able to describe the stream of consciousness? 
Um, cognitive phenomenology might be one option. Um, phenomenology of agency could be another option. But there would be also, some of them can be reduced to some combinations of the others. How do you have a sort of a minimalist, or a minimal list, I should say, <laughs> minimal list of primitive phenomenologies in terms of which all the other types of phenomenology can be understood? That, so that's that's the book that I'm writing now. That's called the Varieties of Consciousness. Oh, okay. Well, uh, thank you very much, um, thank you. Uriah, um, and uh, I look forward to the next the next book. Cool. Okay. Uh, and uh, thanks again for inviting this response. Okay. Bye bye. We've been talking with Uriah Kriegel, associate professor of philosophy at the University of Arizona about his new book, The Sources of Intentionality. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed our podcast, and thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.